Good evening to you. Genesis chapter 1. Sunday nights, go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So we start anew. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'd assume that's one of the most read sentences in human history, uh, certainly in the Bible. Everybody that starts to read the Bible at least gets that far, don't they? But, uh, I mean, Genesis chapter 1 is just amazing to me because it's so um, concise and so, boom, right to the point. I'm not. I won't be tonight. But, I mean, God is in what he lays out here and uh, just goes, says so much in so uh, few words. And the earth was... Without, without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I think that for some of us it's very, very helpful before we start to tackle something uh, at least halfway in depth to have a little bit of a feel of, of the bigger picture and then begin to work our way down a little bit uh, tighter on things. The book of Genesis is really a record of four outstanding events in human history and a record of four uh, outstanding persons in human history. The four uh, great events that are recorded here is the creation of the heavens and the earth and man, the fall of uh, man, the flood at the time of Noah, and then the dispersion of the human population uh, after the flood at the Tower of Babel into all of the world, establishing then nations, languages, uh, cultures, races developing in different parts uh, of the world. The four great persons are uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the three great patriarchs of not only the nation of Israel but of all of God's people. And then the fourth uh, added to those three is a man by the name of Joseph. The word Genesis means origin. Uh, it means beginning, and I don't think it's possible to overstate the importance of this book. And it's arguably the most important book in the entire Bible in the sense that uh, it's very difficult to understand anything after it uh, without first understanding it. I think that, you know, it's impossible to understand anything without uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of, of Genesis. But in this uh, book of, of Genesis, it contains God's explanation for the origin of the universe, of the heavens and of the earth, of plant life, animal life, the origin of man, the origin of the institution of marriage, of evil and sin, of language, of nations, of government, and, and so forth. And without the book of Genesis, we'd be completely in the dark related to all of these things and many, many more. I don't think you can make sense of the world at all apart from the revelation in this book. We can't uh, understand it. We can't process what we see out there in the world all day, every day without an understanding of, of uh, Genesis. Without this historical record, man would be in the dark related to every important question in life. Questions like, how in the world did we get here? 
How in the world did all that get here that we see every single day? Why are we the way that we are, human beings? Why is the world in the condition that it's in? What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Why do we die? Is there any way out of this uh, mess? And questions uh, like that. Notice in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1, God tells us what he did in the beginning, and in the beginning he created the heavens and the earth. And here God gives us, in chapter 1, provides us with what he alone is qualified to provide us with. He provides us not with a theory, not with speculation or sanctified speculation or anything like that. He provides for us in the book of Genesis his first-hand account of creation. The creation of the heavens, the creation of the earth, the design of the earth, the creation of everything that is found in the earth, including uh, man. This is his eyewitness, his eyewitness account of something that only he was an eyewitness to. The book of Genesis is a book of theology, no two ways about it, but it is also a book of history. It is a history book. It is God's history book. Imagine being able to, wouldn't it be something if MJC or Stan State offered a class on the creation of the heavens and the earth and then you look down for the instructor and it said god <laughs> elohim whoa wait a second i mean are we going to have a room big enough you know to accommodate the crowd that uh, would want to hear something taught like that uh, by him and that's precisely what we have in in the book of genesis do you know that a person who is not educated in any way. I mean, in, in having an education and being smart are two entirely different things. But a person who is uh, deemed uneducated and maybe even uneducated in, in the eyes of the world and all, but has a knowledge of Genesis and the knowledge of Genesis chapter 1, that they have a greater understanding of the creation of the heavens and the earth than the most brilliant man or woman or most educated man or woman who does not accept this account. It, it, it makes geniuses out of, of all of us. God, as he just, it, it lays out how it is that, that he did this. It's wonderful to know the origin of the heavens, the earth, all that is in the earth, and of man. Now notice that the heavens and the earth and all that's in, in, included in them had a beginning. The word beginning is used in verse 1, isn't it? So all of this had a beginning. And uh, uh, we know this to be true because the universe cannot be eternal because it's winding down. And uh, everybody recognizes that it's winding down from some kind of a beginning. Now notice that the heavens and the earth and all that are in them began when God created them. God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Now this differentiates God from all of his creation. There is a creator and there is creation and there's an infinite gulf between uh, the two. When the beginning began, God was already here. He was there to begin the beginning for all of us. Thus he is without beginning. He is eternal. He is self-existence. And since he created all things, he himself cannot be creator. 
or cre- uh, creation. He is the creator. There is a creator, and everything else is the creation, including you and I. Now, this uh, gives rise to uh, the question that every Christian parent is, uh, faces sooner or later with their children. And the question that our children uh, will ask us is, as we explain all of this to them, where did God come from? Uh, who created God? And sometimes we can grapple with how to explain that uh, to a small child. And so we just tell them and... Uh, as simply as we can, He has always existed. He has always existed, even before all of this was created. That is all the revelation that we have related to that. And you know, I'm fine with that. And as we mentioned the book of Revelation and mention every so often, I am so content with mystery in my relationship with God. I believe in this book, God gives us the revelation that we need. Sometimes we look at it and say, I wish he had told us a little bit more about this or a little bit more than that. If he took, I think, even one inch further step into some of these subjects, he would open up such a bomb inside of our brains we wouldn't be able to handle it. We'd spend all of our time trying to figure out that little thing instead of walking with him. So he gives us the revelation that he knows that, that we need and that's good for us. And, and, and any time you have the finite, that is us, we're created in a, in a relationship with the infinite, that is God, you're going to have to get used to mystery because we can only track with God so far. In fact, as someone said, a God small enough to understand isn't big enough to worship because that would make him smaller than my mind, the smaller than me. So why would I waste my time worshiping him? No, he's bigger than us. So he gives us revelation that he knows that we need, and then he cuts off, and on the other side of it, maybe in eternity we'll understand a little bit more uh, about that. Uh, John uh, Calvin is reported to have been approached by apparently someone who was scorning this whole idea of creation and and he came to John Calvin and he asked John Calvin what in the world God was up to before he created the heavens and the earth and uh, John Calvin said he was uh, heating up hell for people that ask questions like that. Now. <laughs> I'm not saying to tell your children that. I think we ought to be a little more gracious to them than that. But I might have caught John on a bad day. I don't know. A little testy on that one. If he, you know, these rumors go around and who knows who said what, you know, is, is, who knows what anybody said yesterday, let alone uh, so, so long ago. Interesting that Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and we will move from it. Uh, I will amaze you with our speed a little bit later. Uh, in the Bible study. But this one verse, uh, as uh, Sidlow Baxter and Henry Morris and so many others uh, included in their commentaries, and it, it's, it's so good, this one verse refutes all of man's false philosophies concerning the origin of the earth and the meaning of the world. It refutes atheism because the universe is created by God. It refutes pantheism, for God is transcendent to what he created. It refutes polytheism, for one God created all things. It refutes materialism, for all matter had a beginning. 
It refutes dualism because God was alone when he created. It refutes humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality. It refutes evolution because God created all things. Now, God has said a mouthful, hasn't he, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's also interesting uh, to me that God does not argue his existence in uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. He just speaks matter-of-factly about his existence. Uh, Just like you and I might (laughs) to someone that we're talking to. God is very secure in his existence. He doesn't doubt it, not for one second, if there is a second where he lives, so to speak. He is not in Colorado searching for himself or wondering whether he exists or, you know, pondering these kinds of questions or anything uh, like that. The fact of the matter is that he does not need to lay out a case for his existence because his creation already does that for him. And all that we see of the creation out there, the heavens, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the plants, man, all of the animals, everything that we're going to read about in just a couple of minutes here, all of that, the interdependence of it, the interconnectedness of all of it, all of it speaks of a God behind it. The, 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 anywhere you look in all of life, And you see creation, something that's been made, whether it's a watch or an iPod or a castle or a bridge or a skyscraper or whatever, wherever you see creation, uh, you know that there is a creator behind that creation. Creation uh, that is that developed and that interconnected and and, and, and that uh, meticulous, we realize that doesn't happen uh, just by chance. The psalmist Put it this way in Psalm uh, 19. He said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day it utters speech, and night unto night it reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. All day, all night, in a language that everyone can understand in the whole world. No matter what our education level, our advantages, disadvantages in, in life. And it, this language in this communication is spoken to the entirety of the world all day, every night through creation. And what does all of creation communicate all day, all night to all of the world in every language? Very simple message. There is a God, 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 like a blinking flashing light and a neon sign to the whole big world. That's what that communicates to a person who's willing to be honest about it. The Apostle Paul put it this way, and it's important as we look at the psalmist and then also look at Paul in the New Testament. I mean, we can read the creation account, but what are the implications of it? What does it mean? What are we supposed to gather from this? The Holy Spirit helps us to understand that. Now, through Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the, fruit, the truth in unrighteousness, because... What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. That is through the creation. 
What do we learn about God through the creation? His power. His wisdom. I mean, you, who, who can... <laughs> when's the last time you spoke a tree into existence? A bug into existence. Alright, so I mean, we, we realize how powerful he is, how wise he is to do this. For since the creation of the world, Paul said, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that's us, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men. The birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things and therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves in other words to here is it, uh, Paul writes by the Spirit of God and says no one has an excuse not to recognize a God behind this creation I mean to miss that is to miss one of the great points of, of creation he then speaks here about the fact that if a person rejects God as being a creator behind all of the creation that we see every day, a person rejects the existence of God for a reason. Why reject the, the existence of, of God? Because I don't want to live for Him. I don't want to obey His word. I don't want to be in subjection to Him. That's the great mistake that Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the Two centuries ago in England, London, England, when the whole uh, Darwinism was coming up and evolution developing, and he said, this thing will disappear in a, in a generation. He said, this has no, it has no legs. I mean, it's not going to get any traction at all. Did it get some traction? Yeah, it got some traction. You know why it got traction? God knows why it got traction. It got traction because it offers an alternative, however feeble it is, to sinful man to reject the existence of God. And because if God does exist, then I am accountable to him to obey him and to live for him. He, he did not underestimate the foolishness of what was belie being believed. What he underestimated was the willingness of uh, sinful man to believe in anything that in, in order to live life uh, sinfully or as he chooses and not, not in subjection uh, to, to God. And, and, and so it, to reject God leads to a degradation in, in human history. It leads to deeper and deeper sin. We see it all around us in the world today and therefore God gave them up Paul said to uncleanness and the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the create creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore Paul is saying the same thing all of creation the Sun the moon the stars looking up in the sky you know the Yosemite the everything that we look around the seas in in the earth it all speaks of a creator. And then not only does creation speak of a creator all around us, but always the creator is greater than the creation. You look at a jet. Uh, again, look at a bridge. Look at a skyscraper. Look at anything that's been created. And whoever created that 
is greater than what he or she has created. And what is true of a a jet or true of a building or a bridge or anything that we can create is true of God related to the heavens and the earth. He is greater than his creation. And that's why the Bible teaches that it is foolishness to worship anything that is created because the creator is infinitely greater than the creation in terms of of Genesis uh, chapter uh, 1. He alone is worthy of of our worship. Now the communication of uh, creation to a creator is so strong. The language is so well known and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and universal that God declares that if a person lives their life in the midst of this communicating creation that we live in every day and does not believe in the existence of God, that they are foolish. That is the assessment of heaven. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, God says, that there is no God. So you have... All of creation testifying to the existence of a creator to God. God doesn't have to prove his existence. But not only is there the testimony of creation, but there's also the testimony of design, the witness of design. All of the design found in the heavens, the earth, and the orbits, and everything, the seasons, and the flow, and the ecosystems, and again, the interdependence of all of life on the earth, all of that design speaks of a designer. Because anywhere you look in the world and you see design, it doesn't happen by chance. There is a designer behind the design. And the designer is always greater than the design. And so as we look out at the world and we see how interconnected everything is, we see the design of our human bodies. You can look through the telescope, you can look through the microscope, you can look with the naked eye. And as we see the design, all of it testifies to the fact that there is a designer behind all of it. <laughs> if you walk into somebody's yard and they've got this unbelievable yard, I mean it's green and it's beautiful and it's 110 degrees outside in the Central Valley and you walk back there and you see the beauty of the the design of the yard and all, you know that that didn't just happen. They bought the house and left the backyard to bake and this is what came up. There's sprinkler systems in there. There's lawn. There's design. Somebody knew what plants would go with what, how many to put in there so you don't end up with a jungle and uh, or you don't end up with a desert. All of that. And what's true of a backyard is true of of the whole earth. The sun, the moon, and the stars, they testify not only uh, to the existence of God, but also, as I said, to his wisdom and to his power. So, in verses 1 and 2, verse 1, God's power as creator is revealed. Also in verse 2, he creates the heaven and the earth. We're told in verse 2 what the earth looked like and its kind of primitive form. The natural resources are there. It's without form. It's empty. It, darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So it's formless. It's empty. It's lifeless at this particular point. He's spoken this in, into existence. That's the creation 
creator side of things. And then now as we head into verse 3 through the, the end of this chapter and chapter 2, we start to see what the creator who's, uh, has done in creating it now begins to deal with all of it as the designer. Now, by the way, in, in verse 1, the word created is an interesting one. It's the word bara in, in, in the Hebrew. And it means to create something out of nothing. And it's only used of God in the Bible. You know why it's only used of God? He's the only one that can do that. You and I can create some. I can create a cake. But you've got to give me all the ingredients. And I'll, I'll still think I did something great. Somebody provide the oven for me, the directions. It's all in a box, two eggs, some oil, and some water, and all. And I'll put that in there, and you won't hear the end of it for 24 hours. So we can create stuff, but we've got to have natural resources in order to, to do that. God just created the whole thing out of nothing. Just spoke it into existence. That's the power uh, of, of his, his word, isn't it? So everything that we see, he created it from nothing. And, and, uh, and that's how he brought it into existence. It has been well observed, and everyone ought to hear this, related to Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And that is that if, if a person understands and believes Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, then they won't have trouble uh, believing or accepting anything that God does in the rest of the Bible. I mean, everything else is a snap after the creation of the heavens and, and the earth. So now, in verse 3, he begins to tell us how in the world that he did it. So here it is. It's, it is uh, without form. It's void. There's darkness on the face of the earth. It's there. But now he's, he focuses now specifically on the earth, not the, not the heavens. Because earth is where he's going to put man. This is all about man, a relationship with man. And so the whole thing is, is all of this. Now it needs a little bit of attention. The Holy Spirit is brooding over the waters and waiting for the instructions uh, from the Father. And here we go. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. On the first day, God created light. And uh, so you've got this mass of what is water with a very, very dense uh, uh, water canopy around it. There's no light beaming on it. He creates light that then beams on uh, the earth. The earth is apparently rotating because he gets a night and a day uh, out of it as as a result of, of that. So on day one... He creates light, he calls the light day, and he calls the dark night. Now that causes some problems uh, for some, some people. And the first uh, problem that it creates for some people is that they're troubled by the fact that God creates light on the first day, but he doesn't create the sun uh, until the fourth day. So they say, how in the world can there be light without the sun? The second trouble that people have with, with this is that they're troubled 
by the Genesis account, some even reject it on the basis of this, is that because the grass and the trees and the plants are created on the third day, but the sun isn't created until the fourth day, how in the world could the vegetation live without the sun, they, they ask. And I know of one man who rejected the Bible entirely solely on the basis of that, that the sun was created on the fourth day and vegetation on the third, and, and so how how in the world could that be? It's no problem at all to God. <laughs> be a problem for you and for me. Now remember, we came out of it just last week. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 23, we were told that God himself will provide the light from himself for the new Jerusalem. God does not need to create a sun in order to produce light anywhere. He created the sun. He created the moon. I mean, this is just something that he made. He can create light independent of any planet. He is light. It's effortless for him to do that. And remember that as he supplies the light to New Jerusalem for all of eternity, emanating from his being, that vegetation can exist under the strength and, and the uniqueness of that life, be light because the tree of life, and there are multiple trees of life in the New Jerusalem, they all live and they all prosper under that light that has nothing to do with the sun because there is no sun in eternity. God is superior to any of these kinds of things. He doesn't need the sun and the moon to produce light or to even produce a light that is superior to the light that the sun produces. And so he, he is able uh, to do that effortlessly and, and clearly that's what he does uh, uh, here. Additionally, and uh, even if this weren't so, uh, uh, even if God wasn't creating a light as he does here uh, from himself on the first day and he takes and creates all of the plants on the third day and doesn't create the sun until the fourth day, they only have to live 24 hours before light shows up. Now if the light shows up anything like the sun today in Modesto, the plants would be happy to get another day break you know, from the heat. The only reason you have a problem with the third and fourth day is if I don't believe that they're literal 24-hour days. And uh, I consider them to be ages that are hundreds of thousands or even millions of years. But that's not what the Bible teaches, and we'll get to that in three hours. So, uh, so apparently this was a temporary light meant only to function until the fourth day, and then the sun and the moon and the stars would be, be created. And, uh, uh, and maybe the reasons behind this light are way beyond uh, merely supplying a temporary light to, uh, to the earth, reasons that God has just kept to himself. So I'm not going to create it until the fourth day. It's best that this light be provided for what I'm doing right now. So God spoke it all into existence. His assessment of it was, despite the clamoring of any others in verse 4, he's, as he looked at it, saw the light, he saw that it was good. Now you notice in verse 5, there's a phrase that's repeated over and over again through the uh, six days of, of creation. And that is, so the evening and morning were the first day. 
And, and the question is raised as to whether this refers to a literal 24-hour day or is it symbolic language speaking of a longer ages. Again, uh, hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years as the evolutionists uh, uh, put it. And some people will say, well, right in the Bible, sometimes God uses the word day to refer to a longer period of time. Uh, Peter wrote, didn't he, of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has to do with the time of the rapture of the church uh, through the seven-year tribulation period through the thousand-year reign of Christ and all the way then into eternity that's what he's encapsulating in the day of the Lord when he uses that word and that's and that's exactly uh, true and sometimes in the Bible the word day does speak of a a longer time period but everywhere this Hebrew word for day that is used here uh, is used in association with a number in the Bible it is always referring to a literal 24-hour day and notice too that the Holy Spirit speaks of the evening and the morning of each day I mean clearly he is defining this day as some time span that involves one evening and one morning one 24-hour day now it seems to me that God could not and cannot be any clearer than he is in, in the words that he uses that he is talking about 24-hour days. Now additionally, for your note takers, in uh, Moses himself, when God gave him the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter uh, 20, and he's the writer of the book of Genesis by the Spirit of God, he recognized the days of creation to be seven literal days. And, he, and, and he, as he gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You shall not, uh, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your maidservant, nor your, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it he's talking about a literal seven-day week and he's saying six days for creation work for man the seventh day is to be a Sabbath day and he uses the Genesis account to to illustrate it and, and, and so he's speaking about 24-hour days and then God said verse 6 let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters and thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament and it was so and God called the firmament heaven and so the evening and the morning were the second day. And so on the second day, God creates and orders an atmosphere around the earth. Apparently prior to this, uh, the earth is a, is a watery mass and it is uh, surrounded by a very, very thick atmosphere, a very, very um, uh, uh, moist, thick atmosphere. And so God comes in and says, let's separate the, the density of this moisture 
scripture, let's take some of the water, put it down onto the earth, take some of the water and, and create an upper atmosphere uh, around the earth and uh, in order that as he's creating it for man and he's creating it uh, uh, for, for life. And, and so he, he takes and he separates this, this uh, water moisture kind of thing to create a moist uh, atmosphere around the earth, the clouds, uh, this, this kind of thing. It's interesting, the Hebrew word that's used for firmament, it refers to a piece of metal that they would hammer out until it was uh, super thin and, and flat. And so the word firmament that he used is simply a thin, stretched out space. Uh, acting as a canopy or acting as a dome around the earth. And that's exactly what our atmosphere does. And then God, verse 9, said, Let the waters uh, under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And so it's covered by water, the earth, and, uh, but he wants land. Uh, on the earth obviously so what he does is he separates the land uh, out of uh, uh, of the whole thing raises some of the land up as he raises some of the land up it makes then the surface deeper in other parts of the earth so that the 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 uh, waters become deeper there and, uh, and and so he brings land into existence and uh, in the midst of all of the water you look around the world isn't it three quarters oh, well seventy three percent or something like that of the earth's surface now we're talking after the flood now but it is is water and all but you look at the um the depth of the sea in a lot of places in order for even some amount of land to be able to exist above the sea and, and so god did that designing if you've ever gone uh, and then he had to do it in a way that wouldn't create a wobble in the orbit of the earth only god could do that if you've ever gone and had your tires balanced if you got a flat tire you get a new tire and you watch the guy work on it and all and they get it and they try and balance it and everything and they put those little they used to be lead i don't know what they are now i, th- I think they were lead and they put those lead things on there till they get it balanced just right so your tire doesn't wobble and uh, and so the lord he takes and moves this mountain range up over here and this and, but it gets the whole thing right so the earth doesn't wobble in its orbit i'd have had a really tough time doing that but he just talks that stuff in into uh into existence and so he separates the uh, land from the seas but he's not done on the third day and then god said let the earth bring forth grass the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind whose seed is in itself on the earth and it was so and the earth brought forth grass the herb that uh, yields seed according to its kind and the tree that yields fruit uh, whose seed is in itself according to its kind and God saw that it was good and so the evening and morning were the third day so he brings forth now the earth is there he brings forth the vegetation from the earth trees grass all of the things that that uh, uh, to, to in order to bring vegetation uh, onto the planet interesting that when he creates uh, these he, in order that it, so that he doesn't have to keep creating these trees he creates them so that their seeds he tells us are in them for their own continued um, 
you know, uh, development and, and uh, whatever the word is for that, you know what I'm saying, so they can continue uh, without him being actively involved. It also tells us that when he created these trees and these different kinds of things with their seeds in them, that he created them mature. So sometimes people are wondering, dating their earth and dating off of vegetation, a lot of different things. Uh, God created, uh, the, he, uh, Adam and Eve didn't come on the earth and say, Oh man, I, I just, I'm dying for a peach, but those things are like five years away. Just little sticks out in the orchard. No, on the, on the sixth day, God says, listen, you got all that fruit out there and all that food, go and, and eat of it. He created mature instantly, a mature situation in the earth. Remember Adam and Eve, when they were created, were they created? Two of the cutest little babies you ever saw. It's a lot of speculation about a belly button and all we do, you know, and with, with, and, but no, they weren't. They were created fully mature. Be fruitful and multiply, God said, in terms of procreation. And so he creates all of this uh, fully uh, mature. And then God said, verse 14, Let there be lights in the firmament uh, of the heavens and uh, to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So he uh, creates these lights and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day that is the sun and the lesser light to rule the night that is the moon he made the stars uh, also God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light uh, on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and so the morning uh, evening and the morning were the fourth day so now he creates the sun and the moon and he creates it for the purpose of them now providing light for the earth but then also a second reason that he gives us there in verse 14 they are a means by which we might measure time and uh, and man has measured time off of this design that God has built into the heavens and the earth ever since so we're able to establish calendars and and measure minutes and hours and days and years and and uh, all of these things because of what God created it is very interesting uh, verse 16 I don't uh, want to uh, minimize if any of you are astrologists but it just says, I like that little five words at the end. He made the stars also. <laughs> and, um, you know, people give their whole life to studying the stars and the universe and all that. And I think it's great. Our brother that was here with Answers in Genesis, Dr. Lyle, uh, who dealt with that whole thing. I mean, he just left me and so in awe of my creator in, in describing those things. But notice, God just gives five words to it. <laughs> Look how thick this Bible is. All the rest of this is about man. I mean, the stars are just this thing that he does to create a context, you know, for things. What the love of his life, what he's all about is, is man. That's what his interest is in. It's really amazing. Then notice in verse 20, the fifth day, then God said, let the heavens... 
or let the waters abound, teem. I mean, think about fish and things like just flopping all over in the water. Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So in the atmosphere, uh, the birds. And so he creates the fish, he creates the birds, and so God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with uh, which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply so they have multiplication is built into them uh, by God and fill the waters in the seas and let uh, birds multiply on the earth and so evening and morning were the fifth day and then on the sixth day, uh, some pretty exciting things happen here. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. Cattle, uh, so kind of larger animals, and uh, creeping uh, and creeping thing, uh, and, and the beast of the earth, talking about smaller animals, and specifically those little tiny dogs that superstars carry around under their arms to the uh, shows and, and premieres. So, so that's included in the whole... No, that's not really included, is it? That's, as I think Dr. Ham, Ken Ham rather mentioned, those are uh, mutants. So, but anyway, so the bigger animals, the smaller animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. So we got bugs in there too, and God saw that it was good. So he creates everything from cattle, talk about land animals now, everything from cattle to insects. And then also... On the sixth day, God said, uh, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we have dominion over creeps and uh, any creeping creeps and things and stuff. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. Now notice in verse 26 that, that God plainly uh, declares here that at this point in the creation, he, he said, let us, plural, make man in our plural image according to our plural likeness. Now this, this I'm going to spend a couple minutes here, so, so uh, tr track with me or not on it. This raises the question, and it is a critical question to me, one of the most important parts of Genesis chapter 1. It raises the question, who is this us and this our and this our that God is talking to? Uh, most Jewish literature that I have read through the years on this verse explains that when God speaks of us and our and, and creating man in our image, creating man in, in our likeness and all, that he is talking to the angels. 
And the reason that they will take and say that God is, is speaking to angels here is because they don't want to see any support in the Old Testament Scriptures for the deity of Jesus or the Holy Spirit, any plurality in the Godhead, no trinity, no triunity. And so they say, this is God talking to angels about creating man in, in their image. One Jewish group goes so far as to say this, that one possible reason for the use of the plural on the part of God, and that is to manifest his humility. God addresses himself to the angels and says to them, let us make man in our image. It is not that he invites their help, but as a matter of modesty and courtesy, God associates them with the creation of man. This teaches us that a great man should act humbly and consult with those lower than him. Now that's nonsense. That's just pure nonsense. I don't care how long it took to fashion that statement. That's nonsense. And that kind of, of an explanation, I mean, it, it, it accuses God of false humility, it accuses Him of deception, and it accuses Him of being so weak that He doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, even the feelings of the angel. He doesn't want anything in the creation to feel that it's inferior to Him. Everything is inferior to Him. He's God and there's everything else. No, God cannot be speaking to the angels because... In the very next verse, verse 27, we are told, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. He repeats himself, and he repeats himself a third time. Male and female, he created them. Man was not created in the image of God and angels. We were created in the image of God. And he says it two times and even a third time in verse uh, 27. In chapter 5 of Genesis verse 1, the Holy Spirit declares the same thing again when it says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. Now why would God repeat himself so in verse 27 about the fact that uh, man was created in the image of God? And he's, he's repeating himself in order that it would be an uh, undisputed fact. <laughs> Remember, in, in the law of, of Moses, every fact was established on the basis of two eyewitnesses to, to the situation. So here you have the Father speaking of, of this in terms of the creation of man in the image of God. Later, chapter 5, verse 1, the Holy Spirit does the same. It's an established fact in, in heaven. So, so this conversation... Is going on in verse 26 is God talking with others that he recognizes to be divine also to be divine just as he is well someone might say well what about the great Shema of, of Deuteronomy chapter 6 doesn't the the great Jewish Shema of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy declare that there's only one God and it does here it is for you Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so the Bible does teach that there's one God. And no student of the Bible, and, and no Christian who's a student of the Bible, would ever say that there's more than one God. 
We believe that the Bible teaches there is one God, but that that one God is manifest in three persons. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The interesting thing in that uh, Shema of, of Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 is the word that is used for one. The Lord is one. That word in the Hebrew is an interesting one. It is the Hebrew word echad. And the word echad means one, but it speaks of a compound unity. It's very fascinating. It speaks of a compound unity. There is another Hebrew word that God could have used. It's the word of Yahed, and that is a word that is used in the Hebrew for an absolute one, an indivisible one. If God had used uh, Yahed instead of Echad there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, there would be no talk about a triunity within God. Multiple personalities in within the Godhead. It would be an absolute, indivisible, non-compound one. But he doesn't use that word. He uses a word for one, but it is a compound unity. Very, very interesting. Additionally, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the Hebrew word that is used for God there is the word Elohim. And it's fascinating that uh, because in the Hebrew, the name for God in the singular is El. And Elohim is a plural name for God. When you want to make something plural in the Hebrew, you add I am uh, to it. So even in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, God uses for himself a name that is a plural name uh, for God. And it speaks of the fact that God is one and yet uh, plural. Additionally, it is significant that although the name Elohim is plural in form in Genesis 1-1 and elsewhere in, in this account, it is constantly accompanied by verbs and adjectives that are in the singular, as if one person is saying it and not a plurality. And what God is doing, even in the sentence structure there, is reinforcing two truths about God that seem to be contradictory, but they are not, and that is God is one, but it is a compound oneness. It is a plural oneness. Very interesting, it is to me. In Genesis 1-1, God describes himself as a plural or compound one. In Genesis 1, verse 26 to 27, God records a conversation for us that involves multiple persons within the Godhead. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, when he gives the great Shema to the Jews to reinforce the fact that he is one, he is careful to use a word that speaks of a compound oneness or unity. Wow. All of this, even back to Genesis chapter, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, God was starting to lay a foundation for what he knew he would continue to develop through the entirety of, of the rest of the revelation of his word, and that is that there is only one God, but that he is triune. He is made up of a triunity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Now, when you go into Colossians and it talks about Jesus being the agent of creation and uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, uh, and then into the book of Hebrews and all that speaks of Jesus and his place in creation. We speak, we, we read of God in Genesis 1, chap, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. We read of the Holy Spirit in verse 2. We say, well, where is Jesus in, in, the, in the creation account? Verse 26, very involved within the Godhead in the creation with Father and with the Holy Spirit in the creation of the heavens and, and the earth. Why make a big deal out of this? Why go on and on about it? Because the religious leaders in Jesus' day and the religious leaders of the Jewish people today uh, and, and the average Jewish person that rejects Jesus as Messiah today does so for one very simple reason. They will believe in him as a historical figure. They will believe in him, even uh, many of them, his miracles, his teachings, all of those things. But the thing that they stumble over is his claim to be divine. And, and I love the Jewish people, and, <clears throat> and I want them all to know Jesus is their Savior and the witness that is built right into uh, the the scriptures I it's interesting there's one um, uh, uh, source that I have uh, in my library that helps me to get a Jewish angle on on, on some different uh, things and that particular book as it relates to this whole section of scripture teaches that no Jew can believe in the triunity of God Though Jew can believe in the fact that Jesus is divine, that he was God in, in human flesh. But it teaches that the Gentiles can. The Gentiles can believe that, that this is permitted by God. And I, and I, and I, I think that what this particular source is struggling with is the evidence of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and what it clearly says about the Godhead. They, there is no explanation for that uh, in, in, uh, in all, and that we were created in the image of God, but there's this plurality talking about all of that. And so they say, okay, we can't deny that, but it's for Gentiles. Very, very interesting. But it's not just for Gentiles. It's for the whole uh, world. Then notice, as God creates man in, uh, in his own image and in his own likeness, what does that uh, mean? Does that mean God's about 5 foot 10, 170 pounds? <laughs> no. No, he tells us what he means by that when he explains it in the rest of verse 26. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So part of us being made in the image of God is the dominion that God has given us over the earth. We have a dominion uh, over the earth that no other part of creation has over the earth. You don't see brown bears developing cities. 
and uh, you know making uh, great ships or uh, developing some kind of you know very uh, intricate kind of civilization you don't see fish doing it you don't see birds doing it you don't see anybody doing it but but man and the way that man uh, does so we have an authority and, and uh, uh, given by God that compared to the rest of, of what has been created on the earth, we are the most like God. We possess thing, things that nothing else of his creation possesses. We possess an ability to have a relationship with God. Uh, intellectually, uh, what we're able to conceive and, uh, and then mystically involve ourselves in is way beyond uh, the, the animal uh, kingdom. I never ever, we, we have, um, used to have a dog by the name of Abby, a little uh, cocker spaniel, and uh, I never had ever in all the years that we owned her, she's a wonderful, wonderful dog. We know she's in heaven right now. I'm just kidding. But anyway, <clears throat> but uh, I, in looking at her, her, I never had the idea that she was thinking about anything other than being petted or her next meal. I mean, I had no sense that she was involved in this search for God and uh, the meaning of life and the purpose of life for any of those things. That's something that we, we have. Now, I think that Paul gives us a little bit of insight into how we were created in the image of God when he declares in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When God created man, he created man having a spirit, a soul, and a body. We're, I think we're created, one of the ways we're created, in addition to our dominion in the image of God, is that God created us in Adam and Eve. We're fallen now, but when we're born again, all of that changes again, is that he created us as an inferior trinity. And, and I love the great three-finger illustration. God is a, tri, a trinity or a triunity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And man was created... An inferior trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, and then as Paul describes, man was created, Spirit, uppermost, then soul, that's the emotion and the intellect, and then body. So the emotions, the intellect, the body, all under the control of the Spirit, which was uppermost. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Spirit, Soul, Body. God has chosen to have relationship with man in the realm of the Spirit. And God spoke to Adam and Eve and said, listen, every tree in that garden, you go ahead and, and enjoy yourself. Go ahead and eat all of that. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't, uh, don't you eat of that. Because in the day that you eat of that tree, you're going to die. Very next scene. We'll see it next week. They're, they're at the base of that tree. And they partake of, of that forbidden fruit. And on that day that they died. Well, they, they didn't die physically, because our evidence in the room, our, 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 us in the room here is an evidence of that. How did they die? Died spiritually, cut off from a relationship with, with God, cut off from God's original intent, relationship with man and, and all. And that's why Jesus speaks and says, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of, of heaven. And, and so he talks about the, the, the only solution to the catastrophe of a spiritual death is a spiritual birth. And so when a person trusts in Jesus 
for the forgiveness of their sins as uh, their Savior and as their Lord, the Holy Spirit comes into their life and now they have the capacity for relationship with God once again. And that's why he writes this about spirit, soul, and body only to Christians because only we have that capacity by virtue of, of the spiritual uh, uh, birth. And then God speaks... And he says to them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, man that he's created in his own image, be fruitful and multiply, and uh, so fully mature here, the ability to procreate, fill the earth and, and destroy it, no, subdue it, <laughs> if we weren't supposed to be doing some of the things we're doing, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of the earth and every tree uh, whose fruit yields uh, seed to you it shall be for food also to every beast of the earth to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life I have given them every green herb for food and it was so so in the garden of Eden vegetarians even the animals were vegetarians. Nobody ate uh, in, any, any meat. And so that's the way that it was. People didn't begin to eat meat until after the flood when we get into Genesis chapter 5 related to that. Now those of you who are vegetarians, don't get all proud and think that, you know, uh, on everything. It's, I mean, it's probably, there's probably some health things related to that. Jesus ate meat. He ate fish, didn't he? And, and when he fed the 5,000, he fed them fish, didn't he? And, and some bread. And if that little boy had, had brought steak fajitas, I'm convinced that he, they'd have all had steak fajitas uh, for lunch on that day. So uh, anyway, uh, you've got to back off a little bit there uh, related to it's good for you. I'm glad that you do it, but no particular diet is more spiritual uh, than another. Uh, they can be more healthy and uh, good to pray for our meals too. And then God saw everything that he had made and indeed, it was very good, and so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So his commentary on what he had created in the six days, we won't get into the seventh day until uh, next week, because that is the opening part of, of, of chapter 2. But he looks at all of his creation, and he said it's very good. Now remember, we don't live in that world. That's the original creation before the fall. But when he looked at that, it was very, very good. He was very happy with what he had created. Now let me close with this. When you have questions, and I think that they are important questions in life, questions like how did we get here and, and why are we here and what's the purpose and the meaning of life, those are all very, very good questions for people to ask. I think probably the mystery in heaven is that why people don't ask more of those questions instead of going to the movies all the time. But... Um, the interesting thing about those questions is that only the Bible addresses them authoritatively. One of the favorite passages in, in my early Christian life was one where God made a challenge to the children of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. He challenged them to put their gods, they were worshiping a bunch of false gods, to a God test to see whether they were worthy of being uh, worshipped as God. And, it, and it's in Isaiah chapter 41 verse 21. And God said, 
Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them tell us the future ahead of time. Let them show us the former things, how we got here. Why am I this way? Why is the world in the condition that it's in? Uh, And so let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come show the things that are to come hereafter uh, that we may know that you are God's yes do good or evil that we may be dismayed and see it together indeed you are nothing your work is nothing and he who chooses you is an abomination that's known as clarity so God says to them in order for you he's speaking to people he loves speaking to the nation of Israel He said, just go to all these things that you're worshiping in life, all these false things. And if they cannot offer you an explanation for how we got here and how all of this around us got here and why it's in the condition that it's in, it is not worthy of being trusted as a God because any God that is worth his salt can answer those questions. And how few religions in the world address how we got here, what the purpose of, well, they do address purpose of life, how we got here, why the world is in the condition that it's in. But why would I believe any teaching about the purpose of life, how I am to live my life, and why would I believe anyone who claims to speak authoritatively about life after this one, If you cannot give me something to uh, test your truthfulness by telling me uh, how we got here and something that I can concretely test. The interesting thing is only the God of the Bible is, is the one who takes and passes the test that God himself establishes in the book of Isaiah. And I just love it. I just love it. I look at my future, my eternity that is out ahead of me. I look at the life that I'm living and, and obeying God's word, understanding what the purpose of it is and, and why things are the way that they are all of these things. I mean, our lives are so complete as Christians because he doesn't just talk about now and he doesn't just talk about forever. He talks about what came first so we can trust him for now and we can trust him forever. Let's stand together and we'll pray and close. Should be great if the worship team came. All right. Father, thank you so much for this history. Thank you for the details that you include in it things that you want us to know and to understand. Lord, we thank you for this account. And I mean this, just the the conciseness of it, the terseness of it, and, and yet unbelievable depth in all of it. Thank you for answering the questions that are in our life, Lord. Thank you for devising a means by which we might know that our God is trustworthy. Uh, to speak into our lives about our today and about 
our tomorrow. Thank you, Lord, for then bringing Jesus into our lives and overwhelming all of our past and all of our present and all of our future in his sacrifice. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for being the Father that you are to us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.